Welcome back to Here to There, a podcast about commuting in and around the Twin Cities and where it could go next. From Apparatus and Transit for Livable Communities and co-hosted by Laili Fatahi and Laura Mon-Ginsberg, Here to There brings you along for a variety of commutes across the many systems, neighborhoods, and modes available to Twin Cities commuters. In today's episode, we focus on livability from the perspective of supporting a large demographic of aging citizens who need broader options when it comes to housing and transportation. We begin today's episode on a walk-along in the Highland Park neighborhood of St. Paul, where we learn what it's like to become a dedicated pedestrian and to live in a transit and amenity-dense location. Then, we head to the studio where we're joined by a livability expert who has worked with AARP Minnesota, the Metropolitan Area Agency on Aging, and many other organizations and cities to help them rethink the ways a community can meet seniors' needs. To follow along with additional resources and information, visit heretotheirpodcast.org and follow the H2T podcast hashtag on Twitter. And now, let's join the ride. My name's Matt Hollinshead. I live uh, in a, uh, next to a business district um, in uh, Highland Park in St. Paul. This is Laura, podcast co-host and the interviewer you'll hear on today's episode. You just heard from Matt, a retiree living in St. Paul, who joined me for a walk around his neighborhood. Um, it's very hard to find housing like this, as I mentioned before. Did you see anything else on the market that came close to having that many options? Uh, no. It, it's almost impossible to find. Getting from here to there can be difficult as you age. Whether you stay in your home or community, or go somewhere different altogether, how you get around can change drastically. I have a list of my destinations, and... The other reason we bought this house is it has uh, eight bus lines within a block. He's not kidding. The list of buses is incredible. So it's the A-Line Rapid Bus, which goes up to Rosedale Shopping Center in Roseville, 23 bus to Uptown, the uh, 46 bus to Edina, the 70 and 74 buses to Eastside St. Paul through downtown, the 84 bus also, it's a local, but it also goes to Rosedale in Roseville. The 87 bus, which goes by a different north-south street to Rosedale in Roseville. And finally, the 134 Express, which goes to downtown Minneapolis, uh, which is a commuter bus. On top of all the transit options, there's plenty in walking distance as well. Here are the walking destinations. Fairview Clinic, 528 feet. Fairview Pharmacy, 528 feet. True Stone Credit Union, 482 feet. U.S. Bank, 1,584. You get the idea. Mm-hmm. With so much nearby, Matt has become a dedicated pedestrian, which comes with its own challenges and considerations. Then also, once you become a pedestrian, mm. the rest of your world changes. The clothes you wear, the tools you use, all become different if you're really bound and determined to be a pedestrian. So one of the things when you become a pedestrian, if you're dedicated to it, you still have to carry things. From short distance to long distance, first is trekking poles. So I'll start with very short distance. First of all, backpack and two trekking poles. I use trekking poles with bicycle flashers on them. So when I'm crossing a busy street, cars see me and they stop. That means that I don't get a bad back from having a backpack on my back. Next is the Zuka. The next thing I want to show you is this little structure on a cart. You can sit on it, you can stand on it. It's called a Zuka. It's good for one or two hundred feet. If you need to sit down, if you're in your 60s or 70s, it's a chair. 
So that's a relatively short, one to 200 feet. And a commuter business cart. This is next. Uh, this is by Riesenthal. It's available at Container Store. It's a commuter business cart. That means it's more fashionable than something that might make you look like a bag lady. <laughs> and a stair stepper cart. Then the next thing is a stair stepper cart. If you have to go up and down some flights of steps outside, this has the three wheel spinners on either end of the axle, which means they rest flat on each tread of the stairs, so it's much easier on you. And finally, a rugged rolling suitcase. And finally, for long distance trips, I went to San Francisco and back with this rig last year. Wow. First of all, the airline bag, the carry-on with the little tiny wheels that only go on interior floors in airport terminals, mm -hmm. that doesn't work outside. You can't go over snow drifts, you can't go over curbs much at all, you can't go across mud, dirt, you can't walk on a gravel path. So if you're like me and you like to come out of an airport terminal and maybe find a little shuttle that'll take you to the nearest mass transit stop, you're going to be going up and down some of those things and your airline bag is not going to do it. So I mounted it on, um, again, what would normally be a two-wheeler, except it has the three-wheel spinners on each end of the axle also, so you can rest flat on each tread of every stair you ever encounter outside. So it's not just luggage to carry things. Of course, your gear is one thing. What you're wearing and how you're protecting your person is another. There's also clothing. Mm, when sure. you become a full-time pedestrian, your clothing is exposed to the weather all the time. Again, we have many options for the inclement weather spectrum we experience in Minnesota, starting with the most extreme, a full-length duster. So, uh, the most extreme is I have this oil cloth duster which goes down to my ankles, which is out of a cowboy movie. <laughs> I don't wear it very often because it's very heavy, but when we have an all-day heavy drizzle and I do have to go someplace, this is the ideal thing. I always wear a lightweight uh, Eddie Bauer parka and underneath that uh, a vest which holds, uh, which has an iPad pocket and an iPhone pocket. And then uh, I have several pairs of 5'11 pants which are uh, ripstop uh, blend nylon cotton uh, coated in Teflon. Uh, if you had the misfortune to run into a SWAT team sometime, uh, this is the type of um, uh, outerwear that they might wear, uh, but it also has cargo pockets. Ready for our walk, Matt grabs one more item that he needs as a committed pedestrian. So I'm going to take this with me, which I view as part of being a pedestrian. Okay, what is this? This is a grabber. Oh, it's uh, mainly made for old people to grab things from <laughs> shelves they can't reach, but I use it to grab litter because one of the things about being a pedestrian is you're in much closer contact with litter than you are in a car. Sure. A pedestrian sees everything on every sidewalk. So you're a really active pedestrian then, so you're really, you know, taking care of your own I space. I want to take care of the pedestrian environment, not just be a pedestrian. Now that we're out in the hustle and bustle, and just a forewarning that you'll hear some traffic because we're out in the Highland Park Business District, it's easy to see just how close we are to crucial amenities. We did buy the house because there's no street in front of it, but we also bought the house because essential services, clinic and food, are right nearby. So you've been very planful and deliberate in moving here. Absolutely. One of the things that we're exploring in, in this episode of the podcast is the idea of 
what we need to put in from an infrastructure perspective yep. and a service perspective, particularly as people are aging and they're yep. choosing to age in place, whether that means I want to stay in my city or I want to stay in my home or I want to stay near my place yep. of worship or what have you. Well, it's interesting you should mention this because we're facing now 122 empty acres where the Ford Motor uh, Company plant used to be and just got torn down. So here's a huge opportunity. We have quite a few people my age, uh, I'm 68, who are looking to downsize. Housing is not affordable, not just for low-income people, but for middle-class people. Sure. If you check the prices on all the new apartments that are going up everywhere, uh, very few of us want to pay that kind of rent. So I don't know how they're going to market all that. There might be a correction. But what we do need is housing that's within reach of a reduced income of the middle class, not just low-income people. Matt's right. Barb Dacey, the director of the Washington County Community Development Agency, was quoted in an April 25th article for the Pioneer Press, saying nearly 150,000 older households in Minnesota qualify for affordable senior housing. That's six times the number of units currently available. If we could do our zoning or our, our um, redevelopment of cities so that there was an average distance uh, to grocery stores and clinics that was walkable, I think that would make a revolution in uh, city living. You hear the term uh, food deserts, uh, mostly in bigger cities, Detroit, Chicago, Southside Chicago, places like that. But if you look even at St. Paul or Minneapolis, there are areas where you can go for a couple miles without being able to uh, access a full-service grocery store, mm -hmm. likewise for clinics. So I would like someone, maybe an egghead in a university, with a team of researchers to come up with a comprehensive proposal of how we could ensure that every urban neighborhood had a certain average distance to groceries, to, to medical care, to basic necessities, so that you wouldn't have to worry so much about your location. You'd know that wherever you chose to locate, those services would be within reach. Yeah, that really does speak to this idea of aging in place, right? Yeah, if if you knew that right. you didn't have to necessarily uproot or move if you didn't want to choose we to. We would like to be able to sell our house when we decide to and move across this arterial to some senior housing that was affordable for us. I don't know if we'll be able to do that. I think we might end up converting the house to uh, suit us aging in the house. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a single level of, at ground and a, and a partially finished lower level so we might if we if we have to we might put in a, like an electric chair on the stairway to the lower level you sure. know the design from scratch for long-term care is so superior to trying to convert uh, houses that were basically meant for uh, uh, starting families the city should prioritize empty nester housing that's, that's affordable Affordable housing is a term that's long been used in a very narrow fashion. With the quickly growing group of aging boomers, it's changing rapidly. When you hear the term affordable housing, it almost always refers to low-income people, often to communities of color, but it almost never uh, refers to the middle class. But uh, as we know, with recent economic trends, the middle class is shrinking and um, it's being targeted by um, 
those who, who have great wealth. And uh, so, uh, whereas 30, 40 years ago, somebody in a middle-class household uh, like myself uh, may have been able to afford something different as we age, that's becoming less and less the case. When you talk to or think about your you know, friends that are our peers mm-hmm. age-wise, what kind of decisions are they making about where they want to live, whether that's continue living somewhere, moving? The peers that I uh, uh, know most closely are still in their houses. Because we're all living longer and healthier these days, very few people that I know on a friendship basis or that I work with have squarely faced the idea of downsizing or trying to shop for a more appropriate lifestyle. I think we're all kind of maybe in denial. We're not facing it. And do you think that's partly spurred on by the fact that there aren't seemingly a ton of other options? I think if if we were in a different uh, culture, Europe or especially Scandinavia, I think just the presence of options would get people to be more efficient in their decision-making and face things earlier and plan better. Back on the topic of driving, Matt gives a different perspective on the idea of driving and autonomy being one and the same. The idea that driving is freedom is obsolete. One of my theories about how difficult politics are in the United States is that everybody's basically got permanent road rage. People are, right. <laughs> people are emotionally frustrated all the time because every single, when they go to get a carton of milk or when they go to pick up their child or get a library book, guess what? You, all, you have to get out on the road and start messing with other people. When you watch ads on TV for cars, is the road ever full? <laughs> Never. <laughs> is the road ever not scenic? Mm-hmm. Every road in every ad for every car has beautiful mountains. You're like in Hawaii or someplace, and they blocked off the road for two miles in either direction so there wouldn't be a single... That's how cars are marketed. How have we gotten to this place where people are willing to sit on a five, six-lane expressway that's one direction for hours on end, looking at the bumper in front of them, and feel that that is normal? And on the topic of transit, Matt takes exception to criticism of how it's used. I hear opponents of transit saying, well, I I look at the buses and they're always empty. They run by and there's nobody in them. Well, that's an exaggeration. There's usually somebody in them other than the driver. I stand on a corner as a pedestrian. I watch all cars go by. Every car is built for four people minimum, some of them for six. They got one, the driver. So my response to people in the Minnesota legislature who bash transit is, I stand on the curb and every car that goes by has five empty seats. How is that not worse? Now now Uber and Lyft have have addressed some of that. You know, people who own personal vehicles that were underused are now driving other people. I see who this is, probably my spouse. (laughs) Is she home during the day? No, She's, she's working. Life lesson, you should always take your spouse's phone calls. With that, I'm going to head back to the studio and meet up with Laylee. This is Laylee, and now I am back in the studio with Laura following her walk with Matt. 
I really love this walk along. I thought Matt has some really interesting insights on being a pedestrian. What were some of the most interesting things to you about this commute? You know, it was really just that simple act of thinking that walking around the business district of Highland Park was in itself a commute. We tend to think, I tend to think, about getting to a job or getting to school when we're when we're using that term commute. And for Matt, his concept of a commute has drastically changed now that he's both retired and a dedicated pedestrian. So it was very interesting to hear how he thinks about where he needs to go in a day and how he prepares to go there. Your conversation certainly dug into some interesting areas. We're next going to hear from Lydia Morkin, a livability planning expert, and there are some great parallels between these discussions. You know, it's really startling to look at the numbers, and she'll talk about that more, but just a brief example, Face Aging Minnesota says that by 2025, we're going to have more seniors than school children in this state. So there are monumental changes that are already happening, and we know that they're only going to gain velocity. That is startling. Uh, Let's hear more from Lydia about the ways we can address these changes. Today I'm joined by Lydia Morkin, a livable communities planner, who is joining us in studio today to talk a little bit more about what we can do to help seniors live a better, more transit-happy life. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Lydia. (laughs) Thanks, Laura. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be part of the podcast and, and share some information about this. Fantastic. So let's start with um, right away. You published a paper, Ready or Not, Here They Come, Mm -hmm. uh, how U.S. cities are preparing for the aging population. And just to pull briefly from that uh, and and give give everybody kind of some context. So in 1900, 4% of the U.S. population was 65 plus. By 2010, that was 13%. Mm -hmm. And by 2040, we're looking at that number to be 20%. Right. Or even sooner. Depending on where you are. Yes. Okay. So the baby boomers have started reaching that kind of critical stage. They started hitting 65 in 2011. Okay. And now one of the statistics that's commonly thrown out is that 10,000 people turn 65 every day in the U.S. It's going to cut across um, almost all areas of planning and community life. I think some of the the two core issues that communities who are working on this are, are starting to address but are almost the most complicated to address our housing and Mm. transportation because those are um, underlying um, very foundational aspects of life. Um, And if those aren't in place to kind of suit um, our our needs and circumstances, a lot of other things just fall apart or or aren't possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So providing a a much broader scope of housing and transportation options are, are core issues. But um, we're also talking about the workplace is changing. People are, especially boomers, are staying in the workplace longer, Mm -hmm. either because they want to or they have to. So retirement is getting pushed back. There's a big psychological shift that society kind of has to make because it's not necessarily that we're all going to be, you know, quote unquote, old longer. Part of these extended lifespans and more of us um, being older is that we're having what's been called an extended middle age, Mm. which is a very good thing. Uh, And it's going to be, for many people, a very productive time professionally and personally. And so there's going to be, you know, that just didn't really exist before. So it's how can communities capitalize on this? Because people in this stage of life are going to have a lot to offer. Um, But then also most of us at some point, and it varies from person to person, 
um, are going to start facing different kinds of decline or changing abilities and changing preferences. And so communities need to be prepared for those changes and to meet people at all these different points that they're at. It's creating options. You know, sometimes we hear the word volunteer um, and we can think of that in, in just kind of, I don't know, you know, kind of a yeah. a light man. And there's a whole spectrum right. of it's like you ways to volunteer. Like yeah. But, you know, there's people have, are going to have just this tremendous professional experience that they can maybe apply in really impactful ways in their communities. And mm-hmm. they're going to have the time and capacity to do that. So in our walk along that complements this discussion we're having in the studio, Matt mentioned that a lot of his peers haven't yet really faced the questions around aging and moving homes. Have you found the same? A lot of boomers haven't started to experience physical decline that can come with age. Um, and they also don't identify as old. And, you know, I mean, we all kind of have a certain amount of denial about what it means to be old. When you look at the Twin Cities, Mm -hmm. how do we stack up? Um, I actually just finished a report that um, on this question, it was um, funded by the Metropolitan, it was for the Metropolitan Area Agency on Aging, which is kind of the regional center for aging in the seven county metro. And it's called Lifetime Communities in the Twin Cities on the Ground Lessons. And so it looks at what is going on around the Twin Cities to make this another term, age-friendly lifetime communities, lifelong communities. We looked at 17 different initiatives around the Twin Cities. And the Twin Cities are doing quite well. It's everything from county-led initiatives to city-led initiatives to kind of community grassroots-driven initiatives to a couple of transportation programs that are volunteer-driven. An indication of the scope of this movement is the the World Health Organization has Mm -hmm. the Age-Friendly Communities, Global Network of Age-Friendly Cities and Communities. And that has about 380 member cities, I think, worldwide and in, in Minnesota or in the United States. It's over 100 now. But in Minnesota, the city of Minneapolis, Maple Grove, Northfield and Alexandria have all joined the in the past two years have joined wow. this network. And there are many ways to become age friendly. But I think just the numbers associated with that network kind of demonstrate that the momentum behind this movement. So there's more and more recognition of the importance of this issue. At some point, you have to have the buy-in and investment um, and, and real active interest mm-hmm. from people at the decision-making level. And so that's what some communities are trying to do. And the communities that have that buy-in are able to do the most. You know, when we talk about commuting, we typically think about somebody who's going to the same place every day of, of the work week. Right. Um, and so typically that tends to be that 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 perception tends to skew a little younger. Um, you know, students going to school, uh, people who are very, very active in, you know, this this ramp-up time of their career. Right. Um, where do seniors commute? I mean, is, is their commuting, are their commuting patterns different? And is that something that we need to adjust for? Yes. I mean, I think just even, you know, we think of the word commute and mm-hmm. we kind of just associate it, yeah, with people, yeah, either students going to school or people kind of heading into their nine to five job in an office. Exactly. Um, and I mean, the fact is that more and more people, regardless of age, don't have that traditional commute because more people are working from home or in flexible settings and situations. You know, but older people, once they're retired or once we retire as older people, um, they need transit and options to um, visit friends, go out to restaurants, go to appointments, volunteer, visit their grandchildren, go to church or worship. Mm-hmm. Um, all these other things that we do in our life other than working. And we shouldn't have to stop doing those things mm-hmm. just because we're getting older. And there's 
plenty of statistics on what happens when you know the keys go away yeah and how quickly that can lead to deterioration physical emotional mental there are some really great programs out there that actually help people transition out of driving they even help with you know family members who need to take away the keys and helping with that kind of emotional psychological transition which is an important resource mm-hmm. i mean there is an education component but there's also i think a you know people and probably the biggest potential is, is with boomers, um, de- you know, collectively start demanding from your cities and communities and counties, I mean, because transportation and transit exists at all levels, for more options. But especially people in, in suburbs um, are, who have an interest in um, using, you know, are, are scaling back, they're perhaps scaling back their driving or not, they just are getting tired of it, mm-hmm. prefer not to. Um, you know, all the... Most of the public transit is centered around taking people in and out of the urban core cities. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't work for retired people. When you think about, you know, the options that are available, uh, Metro Mobility comes to mind. Mm-hmm. So obviously a you know, federally mandated program, um, but there are some factors you have to meet in order to leverage Metro Mobility. Right. Um, is, is it meeting, not meeting? Does it need more yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for people that aren't, and I think unless you work with this stuff or you know someone who uses it or use it yourself, you know, you see things like metro mobility driving around, you may have a vague sense of what it is mm-hmm. and what needs its meeting. I mean, it provides a very important service to um, older people and people with disabilities, um, a, a very important um, mobility option. But, I mean, the fact is that it's it's very limiting. I mean, for I think the main thing is that... Um, you need a doctor's, essentially a doctor's note to use it. Sure. So you have to be, you know, either kind of officially disabled mm-hmm. or have a, a medically mandated, you know, health condition to use it. So mm-hmm. right there, you're eliminating many, many people who need a way to get around. Mm-hmm. There's also something called Transit Link, um, which is also run by the Metropolitan Council, which runs, uh, runs Metro Mobility. And Transit Link exists to uses shuttles or, or mini, um, mini shuttles or vans to help um, provide a public transit option in places where fixed route buses don't go. Mm. But Transit Link doesn't run on the weekends. Mm. You know, it has limited hours. Mm-hmm. Um, it might require that people, you know, have multiple transfers. Mm-hmm. It can be very time consuming. And, you know, I'm not just here to poke holes in, in Transit Link because it also provides a really valuable mm-hmm. service. But I think that, you know, the actual piece of the transportation pie that those services fill even though they help a lot of people, it, I mean, it doesn't even really come close to meeting mm-hmm. the needs. Mm-hmm. So we've also really built the, the, the Royal We, a, a very car-centric system. Right. And that, that's, a, that's a national yes. issue, if you will. Right. And specifically with boomers, so this, you know, this large aging population, they grew up in a very car-centric right. time in our nation's history. And a car, owning a car, was a big rite of passage, an important right. status symbol for some people. Is that affecting how seniors may be willing to use public transportation or, or not as willing to give up a car? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, most boomers didn't grow up using public transportation. It wasn't available. It wasn't necessary. It wasn't even an option. So I think people out of necessity, maybe start becoming open to more public transportation, whether it be public transit or things like ride sharing, like Uber and Lyft, Mm -hmm. walking, biking and stuff like that. But I think the car remains a very important 
don't know if I'd call it a status symbol, but a symbol of independence. And I guess right. that's a, a type of status. But, you know, being able to get around on your own terms, it's independence, but it's also dignity. Independence and dignity are really the exact words that I'd use to wrap up our chat. Throughout this episode with the commuter and then with you in the studio now, as we've been thinking about livability and aging, it's become clear that we have to keep challenging ourselves and our representatives to provide the options that do both to preserve dignity and independence. Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure having you in the studio and meeting you, getting to talk about all these really big, hairy questions. Oh, well, thanks for being interested in the subject. Uh, um, It's gonna be a big part of our future. Here to There is produced by Apparatus, Transit for Livable Communities, and Studio Americana. Your hosts are Laley Fatahi and Laura Monginsberg. Production and editing by Ian Levitt with Studio Americana. Original music supplied by Bubba Holly. No part of this podcast may be used or reproduced without express written consent of Apparatus. To join the ride, subscribe to Here to There at heretotherepodcast.org on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. While you're there, don't forget to leave us a review and rating. Stop by the heretotherepodcast.org website for additional content, including extended interviews, an interactive commuting story map, pictures and videos from our commutes, and much more.